Hey, greetings everybody and welcome. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Hope. Yes, I know it's been a couple of weeks. I I don't have a reason, but I do have excuses. It's just been really busy, you know, Christmas coming up and stuff. So sorry, but here we are. We're back and we're going to take on Revelation chapter 12. So strap in. All right, here we go. Now, I want to start off by talking about tattletales. I think most folks hate tattletales, right? I mean, the idea of a sniveling little wretch running to a parent or teacher and telling on you, it's just distasteful, right? But have you ever thought about why? I mean, most of the time, these tattletales tell part of the truth, some of the truth, even all of the truth. And when someone tells the truth, isn't that a good thing? But there's just something inside most of us that finds the tattletale distasteful, right? And I suspect that what bothers us is the why, right? It's the it's the tattletale's motive. Tattletales don't do what they do in order to preserve the truth. That's not their goal. Their, their motive is to get someone in trouble, right? To bring an accusation against someone for the express purpose of seeing that person get into trouble. This is what they do, and they enjoy it. And most of us don't like that. Now, I love the Lord of the Rings books and the movies. And The Two Towers boasts a very famous tattletale, a sniveling, whining little wretch who I think illustrates this point very well. Of course, I'm talking about Grandma Wormtongue. Now think about that scene in the movie where Wormtongue brings accusations against Aomer before the King of Rohan. And think about what he says in his accusations. Most of it's true, right? He accuses Aomer of bringing more trouble to an already troubled mind, right? The mind of the king. And that's true, technically. He also accuses Aomer of calling for war, which is also true. But we know the motive of each man, don't we? We know that Aomer is a good soldier and is faithful to king and country. And we know that Wormtongue's goal is just to get him in trouble, to get him out of the way. So the accuser brings accusations against the good man before the king, And in the end, the king finds the good man guilty of what may be technically true, but is applied out of context. Now, I bring all of that up because the idea of an accuser who brings accusations against people before the divine council is not a new one at all. This concept is very strongly rooted in the ancient Near Eastern literary traditions of Samaria, Assyria, Babylonia, and even Palestine. In almost all of the cultures from the area, there are examples of this concept of the divine council, a courtroom-like setting in which matters are deliberated. And these narrative sources always use legal jargon and imagery to describe what goes on there. In fact, the divine council scene is illustrated in several parts of scripture. Here's one example, Zechariah 3 verses 1 to 2. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? As Christians in the 21st century, we have lost touch, I think, with this concept a little bit. I mean, it's not part of our, you know, modern literature. The idea of King Arthur's round table played out in heaven with God as the supreme ruler, it's just a little bit foreign to us. But we need to recapture a little of that image if we're going to understand the vision in Revelation 12. Now, unfortunately, we need to talk about Satan a little bit today. 
So let's talk about what we know about Satan and think about where we get all that information. Now, I think there are five things that everybody knows about our enemy. Number one, his name is Lucifer or Satan, and he is also called the devil. Number two, he was an archangel like Michael or Gabriel. Three, he was cast out of heaven before God had created everything. Four, he decided to deceive Adam and Eve to get back at God. And five, he lives in the lake of fire and has come to earth to torment us. Now, I think it might surprise you how much of what we know doesn't actually come from the Bible. For example, it might surprise you to know that the proper name Lucifer is not actually in the Bible, technically. Calling him Lucifer as a proper name is something popularized by John Milton, the 17th century writer and poet who wrote Paradise Lost. The name actually comes from the transliteration of the Latin translation of Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, which I want to read. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the heights of Zephon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Now, the Hebrew word translated as day star in the NRSV and morning star in the NIV and shining star in the New Living Translation is halal, which literally means shining one or light bearer. And by the way, it's the only place the, this word is used in the whole Bible. Now, the Latin translation of that Hebrew word is lucis ferre, lucis meaning light and ferre meaning bearer transliterated then, this is our source for the name Lucifer. In the actual Bible, which I think we ought to use instead, the enemy is not called by that name. In the Hebrew Bible, he is mostly referred to as Hasatan, the adversary or the accuser. The word ha means the in Hebrew. So he is called the Satan or the accuser. In later texts, it becomes a proper name, Satan, and in the New Testament, the most common name in the Greek is Diabolos, the slanderer. This is where we get the word devil. But in the Old Testament, mostly he is Hasatan, the accuser. So this is our enemy, the one pictured in Revelation 12. He is the adversary, the, the accuser, the slanderer. He is grim a worm tongue. He is the one who brings accusation against God's people before the throne in the divine council. Now, we all know that this being was cast out of heaven before God created the world and that he sought to lead Adam and Eve astray to get back at God. So he tempted them in the Garden of Eden after his fall from heaven. And we know all of this from where? Correct, our old buddy John Milton in his book Paradise Lost. The problem with Milton's version of the story is the book of Job. The divine council scenes from the book of Job give us the best picture of Satan standing in the role of accuser. And I want to read two passages from Job that, that show this. First, Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Hasatan also came among them. The Lord said to Hasatan, where have you come from? Hasatan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Hasatan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Hasatan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch your hand out now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Hasatan, very well. All that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Hasatan went out from the presence of the Lord. Right, kind of snivelly, whiny guy. Oh, sure, Joe believes in you. You give him everything he wants. All right, the second passage comes in the next chapter, chapter 2, and verses 1 through 7. After Job has lost all of his worldly possessions, but has kept his faith. And this is what it says. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Hasatan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Hasatan, Where have you come from? Hasatan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Hasatan, If you considered my servant Job, there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, at this point, you might be thinking I've made a mistake and I'm reading you the same passage from chapter 1. But it's very common in ancient Hebrew documents and documents from the ancient Near East, this repetitive nature of repeating things and, and going through the same sort of formulaic steps to get to the point. So, no, no, I'm actually in chapter 2. And after God again points out that there was no one like Job, he says this. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Hasatan answered the Lord, skin for skin. All the people have they will give to save their lives, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Hasatan, very well, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So Hasatan went out from the presence of the Lord, right? What a smarmy little dude. Oh, yo, oh, yeah, yeah. He, he only still believes in you because you wouldn't let me touch him, right? Now, here's the reason I read those two passages. Someone has to answer this question for me. If John Milton was right and Satan was cast out of heaven before God made Adam and Eve, then why is he a welcome member of the court in heaven? And how does he present himself before the divine council and the God who, you know, cast him out of heaven? Yeah, that's a tough one, right? The only answer that makes sense is that Milton was writing fiction based on history and maybe didn't give us an accurate chronology. I'm not sure we can use John Milton as evidence as we study scripture, right? It's likely that the accuser was not cast out of heaven until some time later. It's likely that he continued to bring accusations against people just as he brought against Adam and Eve, just as he did against Job. And oh, by the way, if you go back and you look at Genesis 3 in Hebrew... The word Satan doesn't show up there at all, just FYI. So it's likely that this was his role in the divine council. He was like the prosecuting attorney, continually bringing charges against God's people. And while we haven't paid much attention to linear chronology, that's not really a thing that, that comes up much in this kind of apocalyptic prophecy. I think understanding this unique thing about Hasatan will help us understand Revelation 12 a little bit better. So let's dive in. Let's take a look at Revelation 12, right? Revelation 12 tells us that a woman who was crowned with 12 stars, 12 tribes maybe, was about to give birth to a child who was to rule the nations with unshakable authority. And I think it's safe to think of the woman as Israel, maybe even the Israel of God, the people of God. After all, the one who rules all the nations, Jesus, came out of Israel. But now the great red dragon, who we know as Satan, 
was anxious to devour the child as soon as it was born. Okay, let's stop and ask why. Why would the accuser be so anxious that this child would not complete his mission? Well, the answer's simple. He's about to lose his job. Right, let me read you 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2. to 2. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, we have an advocate before the throne of God. When the prosecuting attorney attempts to bring charges against God's people, the attorney for the defense, our advocate, steps up and have those charges thrown out. By virtue of his righteousness, which was given to us through his shed blood, he has the right to throw out all charges against us, charges for which he has already paid. So what can a prosecuting attorney do if he's unable to bring charges against people? What's more, our advocate is also our high priest. Listen to Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Are you starting to see the big picture here? Jesus Christ, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, declares every believer not guilty. He is permanently before the throne of God as our advocate, making intercession for us. There's no longer a job for the accuser. He can no longer bring accusations against believers. He can no longer bring accusations against God's people who have a new and permanent high priest. The job is finished. So he's desperate to prevent Jesus from completing his mission. He strives to ensure that this does not happen. But according to Revelation 12, Jesus is snatched up and taken away to God. The accuser has failed. So what's left for him to do? In his desperation, he launches an all-out war in heaven. As Isaiah says, he attempts to ascend heaven to raise his own throne above the stars of God, to sit on the mount of assembly and to ascend to the tops of the clouds and ultimately to make himself like the Most High. Which, dumb plan. So God sends the one named, who is like God, Michael, to do battle with the dragon. And he defeats him and casts him out of heaven. By the way, just as a quick aside, I think it's very interesting that the one who is God's warrior is named who is like God. And the one who delivers messages of salvation is named the warrior of God, Gabriel. Isn't that cool? Gabriel announces that God has joined and won the real battle, the redemption of all who believe. Now the war is just plain silly for who is like God and who can war against him. This is so cool. Anyway, so Michael and the angels go to war against Satan and his followers, and Satan is overcome and cast out of heaven permanently. And verse 11 tells us that he is specifically overcome by the blood of the Lamb. This war was over before it began. Jesus conquered sin and death, and the accuser is finished. And verse 12 describes the rejoicing in heaven, but pronounces woe to the earth, for the adversary has come down to us. So Satan takes a look at his situation and realizes he has lost. Not only is he out of a job, but heaven is lost to him. He has nothing left. Nothing. Um, except, oh, here's a plan. So Satan comes up with an idea. He determines to go after the woman's other children, the church. And the rest, as they say, 
has been our history. All right, so there are three important things going on here that we have to remember. First, we were promised suffering in chapter 11. Remember, the prophecy John is given of the witnesses who testified of the truth for a time and then appear to be overcome would have been a recognizable sign to the first century church, which was already well acquainted with suffering. There has been suffering in our past, and I believe there is suffering in our future, and we should be prepared for it, right? So FYI, regardless of what you might hear on TV by TV preachers who like to preach this gospel of prosperity, that as long as you live right, everything will go your way. I'm not sure that's scriptural, right? The path of every Christian is not a guarantee of joy and prosperity. It is a guarantee of the blessings of God who loves to give good gifts to his children. But Jesus has told us that discipleship requires denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and following. And so there is going to be suffering. Second, in chapter 12, we see the source and cause of that suffering. The adversary has nothing left. He has lost his job. He has lost his future. And seeing his position, he is determined to take out his wrath on the church, the faithful who love Jesus and follow him. Remember, we were warned in 1 Peter 5, 8 that our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's a pretty graphic image. There used to be lions in that part of the world, but even though we don't live under the real threat of lions, it's not hard for us to picture, right? Lion, it's kind of terrifying. It's a pure predator. It lunges for the jugular of its prey. This is not a beast that toys with its food. Its goal is to kill and devour, period. This is the image Peter gives us of the enemy. And Revelation confirms that message. Don't believe the popular tripe you see on TV that the spirit world is filled with either angels who all want our good or ghosts who simply want to share the wisdom of the past with us, blah, blah, blah. No, no. We have a real enemy who is not flesh and blood, but spirit, and he wants our destruction. He is like a lion, and he is out there even now seeking our destruction. So we need to be watchful, right? If you ever go jogging in rural California, you need to keep a watchful eye open for mountain lions who have snared more than one careless jogger, right? We hear it all the time on the news. Like that, we must also keep a watchful eye. Understand what weaknesses you have that he might exploit. Seek the help of a brother or sister in Christ. Be watchful for others to help them see danger that they may not be watching out for. We are so much harder to overthrow when we are united in Christ. Amen. Third, are you a little scared by that? Well, don't be. Be vigilant, but not scared. And why not scared? Because the war against Satan is a past tense event. One of the primary themes of Revelation is that God has already won it. It's over. He won. And what we're experiencing now are the after effects of that victory. Our salvation is assured. If we have faith, if we endure, the crown of life is promised to us. So we need not fear the enemy for he has already lost. That's why he's so angry. So we must be watchful, but not afraid. Watch for his snares and lies and traps. Cling to the truth of Jesus and follow him. But do not fear that old lizard who drags his tail through the dust of this earth in the aftermath of losing it all. Why? Because God has already won. That's the message to us in Revelation 12. We need to know that our enemy is real. Our enemy is furious. Our enemy has nothing left to lose. We must be watchful because we have an enemy who is actively seeking our destruction. And we must endure. We must remain faithful. We must follow Jesus. But we should never be afraid. Remember that the war has been won. The blood of Jesus Christ is the weapon Satan could not, cannot, and never will overcome. Right? We're the battlefield. 
and we will experience the effects of this struggle. And while skirmishes continue, the war is over. The victory's been won. If you could boil Revelation down into just one phrase, it would be, God has already won. So rejoice, rejoice in our God, for who is like him, amen? All right, I wanna pray for you now. And as always, I encourage you to keep your eyes on what you're doing, right? Just let your hearts pray with me now. Father, we thank you so much for this promise of victory. This world is nuts. And I'm sure, Lord, every generation has seen its own craziness. But, man, this year has just been uh, a trial. And with everything that's going on, with the folks that we know who are struggling just to get through every day, it's hard sometimes to, to keep our attitudes positive and our eyes focused on you. So Lord, we thank you so much for this message of victory, a victory song in this book of Revelation to remind us that you have already won. Lord, be with us, encourage us, uh, make that knowledge of your victory a realization, make it manifest in us and let us share the joy of that with those around us who need it every day. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. Thanks again. Sorry for the two weeks off and hopefully I will be with you again next week. Peace.